Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast brought to you by the Manchester Evening News. I'm your host today, Rich Fay. I'm joined by Tyrone Marshall for this episode. During the international break uh, on today's episode, we will lift the lid on what it's like to cover United, what it's like to cover United, particularly during an international break when they're not actually playing any football. We'll let you know what we've done this week so far, and we will also give our verdict on the season so far, those stand-up players and those who maybe haven't quite been up to standard. But first... Ty and I, it's been a long week, hasn't it? But maybe not as bad a week as it could have been because United did actually win last weekend. The mood's quite good and I think the reflection of that is there's not much to talk about right now, is there? No, it's been a pretty quiet week. I think it's it's fair to say, all right, there's not been a lot of of talk at all. Um, There's often this view, I think, from a lot of United fans that that the press want to see them lose and want to see them struggle. I cannot tell you how happy the press room was on Saturday that they had won because it did totally transform this week from... A disastrous week, one of huge inquests again. What's going on? Talk about Ten Hag's future. Just a two weeks of negativity to essentially two weeks of of calm. That they did get that win. Everything is is okay for now. You know, clearly there's still issues there, but the difference those two goals made to the mood is massive, and it's made it's made our job easier in a way because there's not that that inquest. And, and like I say, everyone everyone who covers the club on a regular basis was was very happy on on Saturday that they have won and, and calm things down. It makes finding stories a little bit harder, but it, it would have been a, a disastrous two weeks, I think, had uh, yeah. had they lost that game and would have been going through more more inquests. I mean, the number of inquests that have gone on to this club in recent I was going to say that because I, I guess the what underpins it all is, even if United had lost last weekend, we would all have to sort of write stories on where United stand now. But the truth is, they're going to stick with Ten Hag, aren't they? They've they've put so much money in here and there's so much backing in Ten Hag that obviously the win was a, a massive positive, but it would have been tedious, wouldn't it? A week of having to speculate about something that's not really going to happen. It would, yeah. I mean, I think Monday and Tuesday there'd have been stories about how United are still backing Ten Hag, which they obviously are, and even if they'd lost, it'd have been seven defeats in 11. There's no way he'd have been going anywhere. But it would have been, like I say, the, just, just the analysis really of where things are going wrong. The, the speculation about what might come next. And I think had he lost, I don't think he'd have been under immediate pressure, but a run of seven defeats in 11 would have been disastrous, really. And you could certainly, you know, had that continued for the next 11 games, you could certainly see a scenario where things might have to change. So, you know, it, it was transformative in terms of, of how we're sort of looking at things now. And for United, maybe it's a turning point. I said on Monday's podcast that, you know, Diego Dallo called it a, a turning point. They've got a 
they've got to do more to make it a turning point than just say it. But um, but you know, it, it has transformed the mood and it has been a very quiet international break so far. Yeah, I suppose the only sort of story, <laughs> as it were, that we both worked on was the behind closed doors match against Barnsley on Tuesday. I mean, I will lift the lid again here. I got a lovely email this week from someone asking, why would you bother posting that story if you can only give us select information? I guess the, the narrative of it is, is it, it, the, there is interest in it because it's a Manchester United are playing a match, which is you know, behind closed doors, so it's quite secretive. I mean, the reason why it's not made public is because from United's point of view, it is just a training exercise. And you understand that from the club's point of view that, you know, that they don't really, whether they you say whether they win or lose, they're not really too plussed. But, you know, maybe you hear more when they do lose these sort of matches. The fact they were run-of-the-mill sort of training exercise. It is difficult sometimes to, to be able to get the information you want for a story like that, don't you, Ty? It's like the, the email I had was, if you're not going to tell us who played, what's the point of putting the story out there? Which you get, but we're not trying to hold anything back. If we knew we'd <laughs> no. be putting it out there, trust me, we were clutching at straws ourselves. But United played Barnsley, 3-0 win. We know Anthony played, we know Van der Beek played and scored. And... That's kind of it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we'd love to tell you more. Um, maybe in time we will tell you more. We certainly have enough people to try and find out what's gone on. Like you say, United never released info really on, on behind closed doors games. It is, it is exactly what it says, behind closed doors and uh, a glorified training exercise. It was a, a second string Barnsley team, players who, who need minutes. They're not playing this week in... Uh, I think it's still a new one. Uh, they're, they're not playing. That's how much insight we had in this place. That's how much insight, yeah, yeah. I hope they're still a new one because that's what I wrote. Um, so yeah, they're not playing this week. So they, I think it's their, they were their fringe players, players who need minutes and the same sort of thing for United. Obviously, most of the squad's gone away on international duty. Um, Anthony van der Beek, like we say, started the game. Um, Regulion was supposed to play, believe we think he did, but we couldn't say for certain. So maybe he did. So can't include that. You have to fill in. We'll find out. <laughs> we'll find that's out tomorrow's exclusive. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it is. It's one of those where you try and find out as much info as you can. But there's, a, yeah, there's an appetite for fans to know what happens in in behind closed doors games. But we're never given an invite, so it's a case of just trying to, like we say, piece it together from from as many sources. But it's telling. It's probably not telling that Van der Beek played. I think. I mean, he's. he's come on in two games this year, played about 21 minutes and played and scored against Barnsley. But United have got so many midfield options now that yeah. it's difficult to see how anything... I was always contemplating that today. I was like, do I do a Van der Beek redemption story? Yeah. And I was like, come on. Like, no offence to him, but he, he's had his chances. It's Ten Hag's squad, isn't it? You know, you, you thought if there's one manager that would actually kick on and do it, would be him. And I guess that's also the problem, isn't it? That as a journalist during this national break, maybe as, as more than the other people at the Manchester News, we do have more of a daily demand to have fresh stuff out and sometimes you find yourself writing a piece and thinking do I even believe this myself? <laughs> yeah it's probably better that like if you'd done a Donny van der Beek yeah which I was contemplating this morning I was like no because I don't even believe that like yeah, I might be being devil's advocate it's been written and proved wrong so many yeah. times now that I think his time is probably up and like you say if, if van der Beek was ever going to make it at United it was under Ten Hag I mean he's, he's, he, his transfer strategy mostly has been to sign players he knows from Ajax and, and he inherited one and, and barely plays him. So, you know, I think it's clear that Van der Beek isn't cut out for, for United. But like I say, it is finding that, that stuff to, to write about and, and inform the audience of can be a slog over the, uh, over the international break. I mean, Anthony, Anthony starting probably mm. suggests that he might be in line to start against uh, Sheffield United week on Saturday. He's obviously come off the bench twice since he returned and getting this run out builds up his, his match fitness, obviously not in the Brazil squad. So. It's interesting, isn't it, on Anthony? Because he has been viewed as, I'm not going to say as a saviour or whatever, but 
Obviously, the right wing has been such an issue for United that he's been seen as this solution when he's been unavailable. But even before he wa- when he was available, he's still not really done it, has he? And, you know, he's he's been at United for a year now. He's obviously the price tag, which, you know, he doesn't have a say himself. But United's, United's still just... They don't look right, do they? I mean, particularly in, in, the, in those two wing areas because we've said for so long, put a striker in there, they'll be fine. But now the service has gone yeah. and... It's it's interesting, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, Rashford's form has fallen off a cliff, as as we mentioned on on Monday. Um, Anthony has never looked an eighty five million pound winger. He's obviously weighed down by that price tag. I think there was a theory at United in pre season that he would improve for having like a back a back to goal striker in in Hoyland who can hold the ball up and maybe get the ball to Anthony further up the pitch. I think they want him getting possession in the final third rather than getting possession on, on halfway and, and having to, to carry it. I'm not sure he's a winger who carries the ball 30, 40 yards. We've, we've seen he doesn't really beat a man. He, he, you know, he's, I think we all know he's got that trick now, but it, it doesn't really, it's not really a trick that's going to beat someone. <clears throat> he's not really got the pace to beat a man from, from halfway. And I think what Ten Hag wants is that he gets the ball on the edge of the area or in that final third and, and can do damage from there. And too often last season, we saw him getting it on halfway and he's so... He's so left-footed that, you know, I mentioned this before, he's run, he almost runs from halfway, getting closer and closer and closer to, to the touchline and eventually then has to turn back and play the ball back to Dallow or Wambasaka, whoever the right-back is. So I think there's a hope that he'll improve for having Hoyland there who can maybe hold the ball up, drag United further up the pitch and get Anthony running onto the ball. United are playing a higher line now, so maybe we'll see improvements from him. It's, it's a huge second season for him and... Something's got a click in in that attack because we've seen from, but we've seen from Rashford that his his form is shot to pieces at the moment. Hoyland, we, we kind of we kind of getting what we knew we would. Some games where you think, what a talent, what a brilliant striker, and some games that just kind of passing by, like Palace and Brentford, where he's not he's not having the impact that you'd you'd want from a United striker. That's understandable. United themselves are expecting that from someone who's twenty and fairly inexperienced so they do they kind of need someone in that front three to really step up week to week now and knowing maybe it'll be Anthony for those of you watching on video we are on YouTube we are on TikTok as well I am wearing a lovely World Cup 94 jumper today and speaking of international tournaments Euro 2028 going to be in the UK and Ireland it's not going to be at Old Trafford though you've done a piece on that this week Ty sort of explain why it won't be there and then another piece sort of explaining the wider implications of what that means for United and just sort of bring us up to date with that. Why isn't Old Trafford going to be one of these, these host stadiums for Euro 2028? Yeah, well, I mean, we kind of knew in April it, it wouldn't be because they, they were off the list then. Um, the final stadiums have been confirmed this week, been confirmed that the Great Britain Island will be hosting the tournament. Basically, it was concluded on the FA's original bid submission to the, uh, the first proposal to UEFA. Old Trafford was included on it. United and the FA had discussions and United, United expect Old Trafford to be available and redeveloped in 2028, but can't guarantee it. And also they can't, they can't put the stadium on the list. It is a possibility that come 2028, scaffolding and cranes will be in at Old Trafford and it'll be being redeveloped. So essentially United are going to miss out on having Old Trafford at, at hosting a global, you know, a major football tournament. Um, I mean, it just shows that the, the state of the club off the pitch really and, and the, the ground they are losing under the Glazers that five years from now we no one knows what state Old Trafford's going to be in the, the, the appointed master planners in March 2022 who have come up with a variety of schemes in terms of redevelopment knocking the whole thing down and building it again 
nothing's going to happen while the club's up for sale and the strategic review's ongoing. That's pushing 11 months now. So who knows? Come 2028, we've got no idea how Old Trafford will look, whether it'll still be standing, whether the roof will still be leaking. We just don't know. So yeah. they can't they can't host European games. And, you know, I wrote this this piece this morning and, I mean, maybe the intro's a bit... Um, facetious and damning of United in a way but it, you know it needs pointing out that at the moment the Etihad's undergoing a £300 million redevelopment taking capacity above 60,000 400 bed hotel on the site of the Etihad a skywalk around the roof of the stadium um, they're you know the City Football Group are the largest stakeholders in the Co-op Live arena on the site which opens next year in, in Euro 2028 a fan could stay at the stadium on-site stadium at the Etihad do the Skywalk, go to a European Championship game at the Etihad, watch a concert at the Co-op Live Arena. City are going to make a fortune from that. And that's just, that is that is what modern clubs are doing now. It's about investing when you're on top as well, isn't it? Something absolutely. that United didn't do. Yeah, absolutely. And that that ground now is going to earn money from, like I said, they're, they're building a new museum. This this Skywalk is going to attract, you know, it's close enough to the city centre, it's going to attract tourists. The 400-bed hotel is going to make them money. The Co-op Live Arena is going to make the money. It's a year-round cash cow, basically. Old Trafford's, you know, barely a barely a football cash cow now. It's it's so it's so run down. The hospitality needs improving, and you, the footprint. You, I'm just say the footprint of Old Trafford is big enough to do all of that. The yeah. city have done, but they don't because yeah. the Glazer family don't care. Well, I was going to say, from your personal point of view, what would you do to Old Trafford? Are you one of these who are in favour of renovation, or someone who thinks? You cling on to the past too much, knock it down, build a better, more modern site and make better use of that space. Yeah. Because I've seen lots, and I yeah. do get the United narrative of, but this stadium is special. It's so different to any other special. Think of the memories I've had there. Think of the legacy you've had there. All the greats. But then on the flip side, you can say, well, that's your problem. You're clinging on to the past too much. Yeah. I know United have such an intricate and interesting history and they're so, those core values go way back to when the club was first founded. Look at all. Look at the look at your top four rivals at the moment, with the exception of sort of Liverpool. They've all moved stadiums. Yeah, and it's not really Liverpool have redeveloped Anfield, and, re and they've redeveloped Anfield. Oh, yeah. They're the exception there. And just as City fans, yes, they have a longing and they understand the importance of Main Road. But when they won the treble, they weren't thinking, "God, I wish we, we were still playing at Main Road," because you know part of their redevelopment and they're, they're moving on to be this, this grand club now is the fact that they did move stadium. And I know they got a very good deal with the City Manchester Stadium with yeah. the Commonwealth Games. Yeah. And it's, you can't compare United to that directly, but the flip side of it for me is just saying, you know, the whole club is stuck in the past to, to a degree and maybe the stadium embodies that. Yeah, I, th I think it definitely does. And, you know, like I said, they got, they got a good deal with the, the Etihad and moving. There's no doubt about that. But they're kept on top of it. They're kept developing it. The facilities there are phenomenal. There, you know, there's a 3,000 fan zone with capacity for 3,000 people that's coming with this redevelopment as well. That's going to make them a fortune on match day, and you know there'll be United fans watching this now screaming about 115 Premier League charges and yeah. state ownership. And of course, they are all legitimate, legitimate points. But you know, United, United make a fortune commercially. They they could have done things with Old Trafford. They could have kept on top of Old Trafford, and they've not. And to me, that and, and what's happening with with Euro 2028, the fact City are going to host it, they're going to have all of these facilities, this ability to make money year round. And United can't make any guarantees about what's going to be happening there in 2028. It, it does sum up the state of the club and it sums up sums up clubs going in opposite directions in, in Manchester for me. There's, 
you know, City are the club moving forward and United are the club moving backwards at a rate of knots under the Glazers and the stadium is the perfect example of that because that site, you know, and in terms of what they do, I can see both arguments really. I, I'm not sure I've really got a preference. It is, I guess it, uh, it's still a big yeah, stadium, yeah. Old Trafford, 74,000. You know, it's, it can still be a great stadium. And to a degree, it is it is kind of a great stadium. It's still got now. that charm of got what it stands for, doesn't it? it? Yeah, the no, you know, the, I mentioned it on Monday. The noise when the second McTominay's second went in on on Saturday was unbelievable. Yeah, the loudest I've heard a stadium in a long, long time. Like really a, a visceral roar rather than a celebration. Um, but it clearly needs modernising. You know, the the roof has been leaking for years, and it still leaks on supporters when it rains in Manchester. It's an embarrassment. You know, it's it's a disgrace that that's happening. And then you look at the Etihad and what they're doing there. It's just a different, it's a different level. It's it's, diff, it's different, you know, it's clubs operating on different spheres at the moment. And that, you know, the buck with that stops at the Glazers. Nobody else, that is solely down to the Glazers. And they're, you know, their rivals, not just in England, but even within Manchester, have overtaken them. And the fact that, you know, like I say, that scenario of the Etihad hosting Euro 2028 games, of fans staying in the Etihad Hotel, Going to a gig on site, going to the museum, doing the Skywalk, it just it boosts cities, um, boosts cities kind of standing, I guess, amongst supporters in a way. I can't, can't think of the right word there, but it and it makes them, like I say, it makes them money, it makes them money yeah. all year. And it also means that if there's a footballing event in Manchester in the years to come, you might have the choice between hosting at the Etihad or Old Trafford, and the Etihad will be able to cater to more need than just the footballing side that, that Old Trafford can't. So, like you said, it's Absolutely. down the line as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's enough for part one of the Manchester Red podcast today. Join us after the break where we'll take a look back at the season so far and our winners and losers from the campaign. So welcome back to the Manchester is Red podcast brought to you by the Manchester Evening News. Ty then, it hasn't been the most enjoyable start to the season for Manchester United. There are a lot of areas of concern, but it's a week of positivity. They beat Brentford. Let's try to be positive. Who have been your standout United players so far this season? Who are those maybe silver linings on this very dark cloud? Uh, Scott McTominay. Um, now, I mean, we're having this conversation before we came on air. I mean, it's hard to really think of too many. Um, I mean, Dallow, I guess, has done fairly well at right back. Um, Hoyland, I mean, we'll come on to the signings. I think Hoyland's done done pretty well. There's certainly been enough moments from him to think that there's there's really something there. Um, I thought Maguire was good on, on Saturday and has kind of shown maybe he's still got a role to play as a squad player. And there's going to be, you know, there's a centre-half spot available for maybe two months with Martinez being out injured. Um Regulian's not played a lot, but the games he did play, I think he exceeded expectations in, in terms of what he offered. But yeah, I mean, you go through that squad and the starting eleven, and I don't think there's, you know, I don't think there's anyone really screaming out as being good. Johnny Evans, we mentioned, I think Johnny Evans has been pretty reliable. Again, though, maybe he's a bit of the. I know he's good at Burnley away, but maybe he's sort of the regular that bar was so low and expectations were quite low that he doesn't take much to exceed them. Do you know what I mean? No, I, mean, I exactly. think he has, like you said, I think he has been good, and he was decent in that cameo against Palace in the uh, the Carabao Cup yeah. as well. But this is to go with Roy Keane again. This is Manchester United we're talking yeah, about, and yeah. if we're saying Regulon and Johnny Evans playing good, yeah, playing better than we expected. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not a, a ringing endorsement. Uh, what you said there, the, the signings then, Hoyland, like we said, 
he's been real encouragement. Again, you know, the price tag, he doesn't choose that, but he's sort of played as we expected him to. He's still raw, he's unfinessed, but there is a player there that, you know, the right environment, the right nurturing, mm. not too much pressure and expectation on him straight away, and he could be could be a player. Who else for you? Is there anyone else that's, that's been signed that, that, that's looked positive permanently? Um, no, I think the jury's still out on the others at the moment. Obviously, Anana. Anana, when he arrives in pre-season, or what we saw in pre-season, I think we all thought he was going to be a positive signing. Mistakes have, I mean, they're not crept into his game. They've bulldozed their way into his game really recently, and there's been there's been a lot of them. And do you think he's being almost unfairly scapegoated at times for the wider failings of the team? Though you know, little protection from midfield, the amount of sort of chances at goal because the defence have been operating. But then, like I said, if, if look about look at the goals he conceded. How many of them would you say are a howlers, you know, not just mistakes, but howlers where it's inexcusable. We say the, Sar- the Sane, Sane Jensen, and Jensen probably are the two you'd look at and think that they're howlers. Whereas the other ones are maybe a keeper who's lacking confidence, just not quite sharp. Yeah, enough. the other ones are maybe you know maybe concerns about his his technique, whether he's making himself big enough, whether yeah. he for a goalkeeper who plays a very high line and is very aggressive in that sense. I think when the when there's threats in his area, he seems to stay on his line a lot and is maybe making the goal bigger. One v ones, I think you'd look at the goal. Taiwa one, you scored again for Forest, and we all looked at that time and thought it's a bit a bit strange, yeah. you know. Again, that was one of those goals where the fact that one you got to go through on goal like that wasn't just down to Anana. Yeah. But then his actual fundamental saving ability was yeah. questionable. There were structural it? issues with that yeah. goal in terms of, well, I said there were structural issues. I mean, nothing has There was no structure. <laughs> in terms of have they set up from corners. So it could happen again. But yeah, then, you know, a one you almost bottled that chance. He took so long over it. Yeah. But Anana just kind of jumped in the air and sat down and, and then got quite a big hand to a pretty poor finish. And you looked at it and just thought, well, maybe he's just been done by the eyes or something there. But then... He went down so early for a Cardi's winner against Galatasaray in a fairly similar situation mm. that you're kind of looking at going like, right, okay, is that is that something technical with one on one? And again, I think it doesn't help Onana that the areas he struggled in the most were the ones that De Gea, De Gea was at his best in, in because yeah. De Gea was an industry leader at one on ones and particularly one on ones from I think they're officially called like long distance ones where a striker's running at you for sort of 20, 30 yards beforehand. Yeah. That is De Gea's bread and butter. He was so good at that, whereas Onana's not. And it's, it is unfortunate that, like we said, Onana's biggest flaw was De Gea's biggest strength because yeah. the comparisons aren't, aren't too flattering then. Are you personally surprised we've not seen Bayindia yet then? Or, you know, I think it happens at every football club that when there's someone out on the periphery you've not seen yet, it happened with Palestri, it's happened with Pereira, it's happened with Van der Beek, these players who haven't quite had a proper chance yet, there's always going to be an argument to say, put him in because they can do a job. Do you think Ten Hag's doing the right thing by sticking with Onana, or do you think there's mitigation now? Because Bayinde isn't just some kid from the academy or whatever. This is a guy who played, what, like 160 games for Fenerbahce, he's played yeah. for the Turkey national team. He is obviously an adequate backup keeper, maybe with the ilk of a sort of Sergio Romero. Do you think he deserves a chance now, or do you think it's the right thing? No, to I think you'd stick with Onana in the league for for now. Um, I was surprised Bayinde didn't play in that, League Cup game mm. purely because I think you probably want to get um, I mean Bayinder or Heaton Bayinder's seemingly is, is number two I mean Fenerbahce fans don't exactly rave about Bayinder um, like I say he's played for Turkey I think it's five caps or something like that I don't think he's their number one 
Um, so there's, you know, it'll be interesting to see him and see see how good or otherwise he is. But um, you know, I think he had a few injuries towards the end of his time at Fenerbahce, and like I said, I don't, I don't think Fenerbahce six, fans, six seen cats. international appearances. Yeah, yeah, I don't think Fenerbahce fans were were you know shedding too many tears that he'd, he'd gone maybe. Um, so it'd be interesting to see him and I mean maybe he'll get this run of games in January if Anana goes to yeah I mean I think what is required is clarity on that and you know Anana might even say look right now for my career I need to be playing regularly for Manchester United yeah. and that's more important than AFCON oddly I mean it's that's every player I don't think anyone's got begrudged someone if they want to represent their national team for, for what it means to them but surely United need to at least have Bayender having made his debut rather than being thrown straight in at what could be a very testing time for United. Yeah, it feels like that. I mean, it feels like Anana himself doesn't know whether he wants to go yet. And like we say, if if he's still performing like this in December... Um, and there might even be a point him. of view from Anana, a selfish point of view, that Anana thinks, look, if I go to AFCON and Bayender plays well, I might not get rid of the team. Place. Yeah. So, like we say, it might depend on the circumstances in December whether he goes or not. Um, but that's not ideal for United because, like you say, you could have Bayender making his debut in January and if he starts to struggle you know if he makes a mistake in his first game it becomes a big issue this is why I was amazed Anana started that game against Palace I just think you'd want whoever you see as your number two probably Bayinda to, to to at least make his debut and get some games but it's hard to see him playing against Newcastle now I mean maybe, maybe he will um, but yeah it does feel like time is kind of running out to give him a game and that, that could become an issue in January and the uncertainty over what's going to happen then is is not ideal Mason Mount, we've not mentioned him yet. What has been your verdict of him as well? Because, again, a bit of a mixed bag. There's been moments I thought, he looks good. He, yeah. You can see why Ten Hag likes him, what he can bring to the team. But it's also very difficult to fairly judge a player because of the wider structural issues. And no one's really played well this season. And that's it's very hard to shine in this United team, particularly when you've got sort of the unsung role of Mount in midfield where you're not going to be getting loads of goals and assists. You're going to be doing the dirty work. What have you made of him? Are you still encouraged that he could be a good United signing or do you think that he's very much looking like what the cynics were expecting him to be? I think he's underwhelmed at the moment, but I, I think he's definitely got time on his side. Um, you know, I think we all thought it looked a good signing when it happened in the summer. He's To me, he's similar in a way to Kai Havertz in that Ten Hag and Arteta have signed Mount and Havertz to be not the players they were at Chelsea, basically. Telag signed Mason Mount, who the player he was at Vitesse when he was on loan there, like five, six years ago now, where he was a central midfielder at Chelsea. He played in the front three or, or as a high number 10 for most of the time. Arteta signed Havertz to be kind of the midfielder he was at, I think he was at Leverkusen, wasn't he? At Bayer Leverkusen, not the false nine he was at, at Chelsea. So they're both, they're both almost having to forget what they did at Chelsea and relearn these roles they've played previously. So... I don't think it's any surprise that Mount and Havertz have both started pretty slowly for their new clubs. I think you can make a similar argument for both as to as to why it's not really happened yet. Like you said, there's been positivity with Mount. That that Carabao Cup game, that first half, he was really good. It, it that game almost feels like it it should be discounted now. Or, you know, I mean, Palace basically rope doped United that week. I mean, Marshall scored, didn't he? Did he score, Marshall? Did he score in the in the past game? That good finish, I'm pretty sure. Was that? Oh, God, I can't remember. Forgotten already. Yeah, yeah the third one, the far post across the goal. Ah, that's right. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. what I mean, though. It's Again, you don't remember who scored in that game. So that, shows yeah, how, exactly. that shows how much of a test it was. Yeah, and it was, you know, I said early on, it was noticeable in that game that Palace were making no effort whatsoever to press United. It was almost like they just didn't, 
Well, their game plan that week so was let's focus on the league match, yeah, which they won. Exactly. It was they they were so underwhelming that night and made so little effort, to sort of getting United's face and to put any pressure on them. There was basically, you know, two banks of four and a front two within 15, 20 yards of each other, and you could tell the Palace fans were frustrated at it, and it was hugely underwhelming. And it, what happened subsequently on the Saturday when Palace played a stronger team. Kind of makes you think, like I said, that they roped them and that the, what happened in the Carabao Cup game almost is kind of irrelevant now. But Mount was good for 45 minutes in that game. There's been moments where he's looked decent. The midfield is a bit of a mess anyway. So, you know, I, I think I'd, I'd still give him time. And like I say, he's, he's, he's playing a role that he so rarely played at Chelsea that I think it's inevitably going to take him time to, to get used to it at a new club and, and in a new system. One of the maybe quirks of Manchester United is that the highs are always tend to be blown out of proportion, as of late anyway, and the lows are maybe made out to be a lot worse than they actually are. United, 10th in the Premier League table, four wins, four defeats. If you wanted to be sort of pedantic, you could say that you know United could have only lost one game this season and drawn three of those defeats, and they'd have the exact same amount of points uh, if they'd only won three games rather than four. Because, you know, draws are are quite pointless as well. They are literally just one more point than a, than a draw. Do you think, you know, United are f- right now five points off fourth. For a disastrous start and their worst league start since, you know, whenever. I mean, every season it seems they have their worst league start for <laughs> God knows how many years. What do you think a realistic expectation for United still is this season? Do you still think it's going to be top four in a trophy? Or do you think there is already an argument that that is too high for this United side? No, I w- I'm... I mean, I wouldn't say a trophy is essential. It's, you know, I mean, trophies are hard, hard to win and United clearly aren't going to win the Premier League this season. I think we can safely say they're not going to win the Champions League. I mean, maybe they'll win the Europa League. Um, one of the Cups, always a possibility, but luck of the draw comes into it. And I think you've got to be mostly judged on what happens in the league. I think top four should still be the target. At the moment, I would say they've got no chance of that because of the way they're playing, but it is still early in the season. Yeah. I guess, I guess the, the point, though, isn't it? If they've got to get top four, it means one at least one of Tottenham, Arsenal, City, Liverpool, maybe even Newcastle would have to miss out. Two of those would have to miss out for United to get the top four. They would, yeah. And not just that. I mean, we would talk... I think it was Monday's podcast. It might have been last week, actually, before Monday, so maybe the odds have changed. But you know, at one point in the last couple of weeks, I think United were eighth or ninth favourites to get top four behind Villa behind Brighton, um, behind Newcastle, and then behind the other, the, the five other clubs in the big six. So there's a lot of competition there this year. I mean, Villa and Brighton have both had moments where they look good. Brighton's defensive record is is disastrous. Both been absolutely smashed in games. They'll have both have had by Newcastle. Both no, Villa beat Brighton themselves oh, yeah. heavily. Um, and Newcastle, uh, well, Brighton lost at home to West Ham as well. Oh, that was it, yeah. Uh, you know, both have had moments where they look really good. Villa especially... But they've both got Thursday night European football. You, you know, I think you'd expect United to finish above Brighton and Villa this year. And if they haven't, then Tanagi is, is probably going to be under pressure come the end of the season. But it is, you know, top four is is difficult. Chelsea is suddenly looking like they're a decent team under Pochettino. And the current top four, I think, have all looked pretty good this season. I mean, Tottenham are taking huge strides. Have got no European football, which is going to be a massive help. You know, City a City. Um, Arsenal look to be similar to last season there doesn't look like there's going to be a major drop off there Liverpool look to have improved considerably on last season it always felt like it was going to be 
you know, part of the reason United finished third last year, undeniably, is that big teams dropped off. Yeah, they took Tottenham advantage Chelsea. of the field. Didn't yeah, they? they took advantage of the field. Tottenham, Chelsea, and Liverpool all had shocking seasons. And United took advantage of it. And they had to be in place to take advantage of it. They did brilliantly after what happened the first two games and, and that falling at Brentford to recover to finish third. But you, you can't rely on Tottenham, Chelsea and Liverpool having two disastrous seasons in a row. And it looks like that's not going to happen. And it means United have got to step up to get top four. And they need, you know, they need to improve considerably to, to get it. Because at the moment, you know, at the moment, the evidence is they won't. But it is still very early in the season. Yeah, of course. And of course, on next week's podcast, we will look properly ahead to that match against Sheffield United coming up after the international break. That is all for part two of the podcast. Join us for part three, where we will lift the lid on what it's like to cover Man United as a journalist. Welcome back to the Manchester is Red podcast then, part three. And this is called Act Free, how a journalist covers United. And Ty, we both have the very privileged lifestyle of getting to cover United on a regular basis. And yeah, I suppose this is more of a, a chat really of, of what it is like to, to cover United. I mean, I think from what I've spoken to, some people are still quite shocked when they learn that we get to games three hours before they kick off, don't they? And mm. there is this sort of routine of you get to the stadium three hours before, you get your accreditation, hopefully you know where to find it. There's some football grounds where they make it, the, the, the biggest challenge is like finding out where you go it. to get yeah. West Ham, for example, it's like at the far end of the yeah. stadium and then you take a, like a lift underground, underground to yeah. get your press pass, which is just so convoluted and confusing. Um, but yeah, what is it like then to, to cover United? And what's a typical match day like for you? I mean, like I said, we tend to get there three hours before kickoff and then I suppose the question is, what do you do for those first three hours? Um, I mean, I would, I would like to say the easy answer is to take advantage of the excellent food we normally get served at, at Premier League games, but there is more to it than that. Um, you know, we always run a live blog on games, which we provide a bit of, a bit of colour to. They're often run from the office, but we're providing colour to. Um, we have to do video content. Our, our audio and video producers are sat in the room here. And yeah, well, we love doing that, don't we, They're insatiable demand for video content, uh, yeah. which, yeah, well, I mean, we absolutely love doing that. Best part uh, of the job. Best part of the job, the uh, the video previews yeah. when we get to the grounds. Yeah, they're always fantastic. Um, and then team news, you know, team news an hour beforehand. And, and part of it is, like I said, we're doing blogs and listening out for any tidbits, doing those video previews. Part of it is just speaking to club staff, media staff, you might be rocking and knocking around as well to your colleagues, then reporting the team news when it lands, any any lines that come from that in terms of people who are missing. Um and, and then the game. And you know, it's always amazing how little I mean there is I always compare it to, to ratings. Obviously Samuel's off this week. He he normally does ratings. Um but I've you know I've I've done them for United, I've done them for City, I used to do them all the time when I cover Burnley and I've never really liked doing them. Yeah, they're the one thing that fans seem to love. Every paper has ratings. Yeah. And there's times where you see so little of the game when you're doing a live report as well, especially second half. You can spend half the time with your head in your laptop trying to write to get a piece ready to go on the final whistle. And you're almost you're almost reacting to the crowd noise of, of what is happening. And you know, there's times when you come to rate. This is why when we get criticised for ratings, which we often do, like how yeah. well and it's also that the, it's twofold because they are the most sort of objective part of your job. What maybe the part of your writing that gets the most scrutiny and, like you said, most interaction, everyone's got to disagree with them. You, you will never put out a set of ratings and every fan will be like, spot on tie, you've done it, you've nailed this week, fair play, this guy, he knows his stuff. 
You're never going to get that. No. And then on the flip side, like you said, it is so hard to objectively be able to watch the match when you're having to do your other writing jobs. Mm. And even if you did just watch it, watch it at home yourself, if you listen to this, and try and fairly rate the 11 players against each other where we sort of start off where a six is sort of the baseline. Yeah. That's sort of an inoffensive, just okay performance. Yeah. And then go from there. To get below a six, you've got to had a bad game. To have a high, above a six, you've got, got to have had a noticeably good game as well. And then it's different ranks of how good that is. I mean, you look at like McTominay at the weekend. He comes on, has four touches, two of them are goals. Is that a 10 out of 10? Or is that below a 10 out of 10? Because... Yeah. You know, objectively, he's come on, done exactly what, what he had to do. He's got two goals, so that's a 10. But then you look at the greatest ever performances, they'd also be a 10. They would. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's got to be phenomenal to get a 10. Yeah. There's quite a, a funny story. I was, I, was, I was at the Champions League final with our chief city writer, Simon Bukowski, and we were at the Etihad for a game together a few weeks ago. And in the press room there, they've got PDF ups, PDFs of newspaper cuttings from all their great games. And one of them is the ratings that sided from the Champions League final, which our, our audio producer is now showing. He has them there. Um, and the ratings, as you can see, are all 10. City won the treble. You can see why, why they're all 10s. It's fair enough. Side didn't give them all 10s. That was changed going for the paper. Oh, for print. <laughs> so the description, like the De Bruyne one, plus I guess I'm going to read it out. Um, so some of them, I mean, some of them are quite funny, like De Bruyne. It is horrible luck to suffer injury in the Champions League final, but he really struggled before he came off. Ten. <laughs> Rodri, his performance was about four out of ten, but scoring the win in the Champions League final deserves some serious clout. Ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, me and Simon were looking at that. And, and well, is it um, Lequip in, Le in yeah, France? Yeah, they've only ever given f- I think they're they've only like, ever, They've only ever given 15 out of tens yeah. ever in the history of football. Decent Tavich got one, didn't he? I think these yeah, were well, for Ajax. Ajax against Real Madrid, yeah. I mean, um, I'm sure their starting off racing is like three or four. It's really... Yeah, really tall, savage, obviously. yeah. I mean, it was similar, was it? The United against Bayern... Uh, German, uh, the German press did them. I think that out of six or something, oddly enough, where six is the worst you can get and like oh, a right, one's yeah, the best you can get or something. Yeah. And the United players had all ranked poorly, but it's like three and a four don't look that drastic on paper. But yeah. if they're running out of six, it is quite a, a leap yeah, between yeah, them. But yeah. I mean, that's the difficulty of doing player ratings. In terms of actual sort of doing the match day as well, if we're not doing the sort of player ratings and match report uh, shift, which our, our esteemed colleague uh, Samuel Luckhurst often does, We'll be doing the sort of morning after pieces, won't we? Which I guess to a degree can be a bit more considered. You can can enjoy the match a bit more than having to write the match report. But it's still difficult. I mean, do you go into a match with a sort of a play you want to write about or a storyline in mind? Or is it all sort of organic on what happens during that 90 minutes? It's mostly organic, but there will be times where it's kind of obvious what the morning piece might be. For example, um, you know, say Hoyland making his debut. It's fairly obvious there's probably going to be a colour piece in that, so you might look to do that. Um, so it's it's kind of, you know, play it by. It's given an example on um, on Saturday. I mean, I'd we still have to do our morning pieces pretty much on the final whistle or, or not long afterwards. So I'd I'd mostly written mine on Saturday, and it was about how it was partly about Tenog's body language in the second half, and one moment that I mentioned on Monday where he basically claps to his knees in the technical area, and which you never normally see him do. He's normally very calm and. It was when I think United were going back from midfield to defence and you know, bits about the, the, the lack of movement from the players, the slow movement of the ball. And it was kind of how they looked, a broken team, basically. I think he used the phrase, a broken team. And then 
suddenly McTominay scores twice and it's the, you know, the whole narrative has to change. The bits of that you can keep because they did. Yeah. You know, they, they well, did that's interesting, isn't it? Because it. when you get a moment like what happened on Saturday, where United scored twice, the narrative changes completely from a disaster to, okay, maybe they've got off the hook here, but it's a moment of positivity and the fans are all positive. And when the final whistle goes, you enjoy it. You don't say, oh, we played bad today. You say, we got, maybe we got away with one, but that was good. But your crit- not the criticisms, but the analysis is still valid for the morning after, isn't it? That United still were really poor for most of that yeah. match, and they did get a sort of a get out of jail free card at the end. So I guess for a morning piece of the day after a game, you still can have that sort of the wider story of the match. Yeah, even if there's a late instant that changes the result. Yeah, I think you you still ref, you, you know you've got to reflect the euphoria of the moment yeah. and and what happened, but certainly within it you can still go into the fact that because I think I'd I'd won last season during the FA Cup game against Fulham, where is that mad red card where Fulham get two players two sent players off sent off for the manager and the manager sent off, yeah. but for seventy minutes they absolutely schooled United and Jao yeah. Polina was mad a match by a mile, but then United went three one. It's like and my morning piece was all about how good Fulham were and how good Jao Polina was and that's time playing that <laughs> and then by full time it looks nonsense yeah. but it still is valid isn't it yeah yeah certainly for, for a morning after and things like that it can it can still be valid um, and you know the other thing is five things we learned there's a, a desire for that sort of thing from, from readers as well a lot of places do that that's you know with United I never find that that's too difficult there's often you know you, there's often five things you can get from United um, City it can be a little bit harder because their games are often so routine in a way. You know, a bit of chaos helps with five things. But you know, as I said on this podcast previously, I used to cover Burnley and had to do five things we learned under Sean Dyche at Burnley. And that was impossible because he played the same 11 every week in the same formation every week with the same tactics every week. It was when we didn't learn one thing after time watching Burnley on a Saturday. Never mind five. Five things we wanted to learn. Five things we didn't we learn. Yeah, 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 we didn't because Scott Arfield was still on the right wing and Ashley Barnes and Chris Wood were, were still up front. You know, there were times where Dyche would go ten games in a row playing the same starting eleven, and it'd be four four two where it would be the same system. So you were really dredging the barrel to learn to learn five things there. I mean, it was being missold to be fair as things we learned. <laughs> Might be five things we. Noticed. So full time whistle goes. We've submitted our two pieces for the morning after, typically. Race to the mix zone. What's that like? Um, yeah, it's... I mean, it's not as glamorous as it sounds, probably. It's mostly mostly being told no. So you've got about... Usually there's a sort of a gap, isn't there? Maybe 10, 15 minutes after the final whistle. Yeah. Players will go in. They'll have their chat with Ten Hag. They'll have a debrief. Someone will go back out onto the pitch. They'll warm down. Fans have largely exited the stadium now. It's, it's just a bowl, a sort of empty bowl do our videos then as well because the audio levels help. Some players will come back out and do selected media if it's on Sky or BT or TNT as it is now. They'll do pitch side stuff, they'll go back up the tunnel, they'll do Premier League productions, they'll do radio stuff in the tunnel as well. So often if it's a game where, like look at the weekend, Scott McTominay scored two and you know he's probably done lots of post-match media there because that's what you typically do, get him to do everyone. Then by the time you come to the reporters where Premier League there is no obligation for them to stop is there whereas for certain tv production companies there might be an obligation yeah. they might have paid for the rights to speak yeah. to a player after a game not always the case in terms of man united um, i think champions league someone has to at least come through the mix zone and stop premier league not the same and sometimes like you said it can be a an unforgiving job can't it it can be pretty thankless i mean it varies from mix zone to mix zone as well i mean the one at old trafford at the moment isn't great because the players don't have to walk through it to, to You'd leave. have to go out of your way to go through it. You'd have to go out of your way to go through it. And like you say, in, in Europe, UEFA are 
UEFA always have someone there making sure players are going through it. Um, but in the Premier League, that doesn't happen. So an example on Saturday, we were brought Diego Dallo to speak to, um, which was great that we got someone. But often at United, it would require the media team to bring us someone. There's games like the, the stadiums. I mean, Burnley's an example where you were at the other week yeah. and got Johnny Evans. And that's a great ground because the mix zone is basically on your way out of the stadium. Every player has they got have to, to walk past it. They have yeah. to walk there. Whether you're in the mix zone or not, just yeah. if you are leaving the, yeah, the, leave the stadium, yeah. they have to go through it. So you can ask every player to stop and... Sometimes players will stop. Sometimes they, they won't. Um, certainly after defeat, it's obviously harder to get players. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the ones where players have to walk past are always the best because you can occasionally pick up bits of colour or injury news if someone's got a protected boot on or something like that. And you just ask players to stop. And if it's quiet, they might do. I mean, we've, we told the story previously of Brentford away last year when they lost 4-0 when De Gea asked to to come out and I think he has to speak to the reporters from Manchester, of which there was only me in the mix zone. So, you know, he came out and wanted to front up about what had happened at Brentford last year when they lost 4-0 and the mistakes he made. You do occasionally get that. There's other times where you just stand around and, and get nothing. And I think at United, they're quite keen to, from what I've been told, they're quite keen to balance out the media commitments. Yeah. So obviously... It would have... I think from a reader's point of view as well, you don't want just to hear Bruno Fernandes every week coming no. out and saying the same sort yeah. of... Yeah, I mean, he's the best talker, so it would be yeah. great for us. <laughs> yeah, but yeah you, you do want to hear different voices. Um, and United are quite keen to balance it up. And I think they get stats from... Um, I think they get stats from the Premier League about who's done what media commitments pre-match and post-match. Because like you say, when rights holders have paid for it, Included in that deal is either a pre-match chat or a post-match chat or both or, or whatever. With us, there's no obligation to, you know, we're, we're not paying to be there. There's no obligation to speak to us. But And that can also be difficult if you've almost boxed off this player and said, well, he's done all the pre-match, he's, he's doing the post-match as well. So he's already he's already done all his commitments, but then he, he's the story as well. Because... That's it, yeah. I mean, it would have been nice to speak to McTominay on Saturday because we don't get to speak to him that often because he doesn't play that often. He was the hero of the day. He was a fantastic story. Yeah, deserved his moment in the spotlight. Yeah, but United are very keen to balance it out. And because he'd done so much post-match TV, I don't know what the minutes total was, yeah. they didn't want to give him to us in the mix zone as well. And yeah. he's, you know, he's done all of the media commitments. So you can see why they want to balance it out. They want every player to pull their, to pull their weight and do their bit with, with the media. So we got Dallow instead, who's, who's a good talker and an interesting character, but... You know, there's times like that where it feels like you, you know, it'd be great to get McTominay because, you know, as, as good as he was coming off the bench, I don't think anyone expects him to start against Sheffield United or yeah. or start again soon. So our chance to speak to him again is is probably a way off, and it would have been nice to get him. But often that'll be why. So it's not like, like I say, had it been a mix where everyone walks through, maybe you'd have thought, Joe, you know I'll stop now because I want to, I want to bask in this yeah. moment as I would have done if I'd oh, twice yeah. at Old Trafford like that. I'd have stopped. I'd have stopped for anyone who wanted to chat. <laughs> Um, but because they don't walk through, we got bored Dallow and, and did Dallow. Um, but yeah, it would have been nice to get McTominay. But you can see why United want every player to do it. Because, you know, being frank, I don't I don't think it's an aspect of the job the players particularly enjoy. No. Um, I, mean, and I also get that to a degree as well. Their job is to play football. It's not yeah. to be a good orator. It's not to come out and have these inspirational words all the time. Some players just don't want to. They literally yeah. just want to play football, go home. And you've got to respect that as well in a, in a, in a regard. Um Personal favourite United games to cover? Are there any, and maybe even from your time at Burnley as well, are there any games that stand out for you that you're like, God, that was really fun? It may be stressful, maybe really difficult to cover, but any games that stick out for you from your journalistic career? I mean, in terms of fun, the, you know, the PSG away game when, when they won and knocked PSG out, the 3-1 has, has got to be 
up there. You know, I think that's the best. Yeah, I think your tactical debrief, sort of ripping him out of the park for that as previously, was out yeah, the window, wasn't it, for the morning? Yeah, yeah. It was one of those that didn't, and that didn't actually change too much because no. they were winning 2-1 anyway. And, and they, they were, were good, yeah. They were going down fighting. very nobly and going yeah. down fighting anyway. Um, so it didn't actually change too much. But for the drama, you know, it was it was fantastic, that that late goal, you know, and, and one of those hairs on the back of your neck moments, you know, that was spine tingling. And it was the fact that everything was on such a high at that time because Solskjaer was on that winning run. It felt like United didn't win the Champions League, didn't it? Yeah, well, it was you know, it was the time when Gary Neville was asking him where you want your statue and how long do you want your contract? And I think Rio Ferdinand... We're back. United, we're back. United are back. And, you know, it, it had that feel that night. It was total euphoria. You know, I'm not a United fan. You're a United fan. I think people people who follow... Spoiler alert. ...know that we support... Um, well, I support a League 1 team. You support a League 2 team, Rich. But I think, you know, I think people know that yeah. our, our loyalties lie elsewhere. But you always... Have, you always develop some kind of affection for the club you're covering regularly. You know, I did with Burnley and still kind of look out for their results. And you want you want the teams to do well because it makes your life easier as much as anything. Um, and that, you know, that was um, incredible. Yeah, And you also see moment. what it means to the people. I mean, you're reporting on this club. You see what it means to the fans of the stadium, what it means to the staff, what it yeah. means to everyone. You can't help but, you know, be happy sometimes when they, they do get their moment in the spotlight and get to enjoy it. I mean, yeah, PSGs. Well, I, th- I think for me as well, I think... Those two wins last season, the Barcelona at home and the City, the City match, City one, yeah. were. I can't really ever remember hearing Old Trafford quite like that. You know, it was. It was. Yeah, the just, other one, the other one I remember is the City before the derby. Before the McTominay lounger. Yeah, when McTominay scored from 40, 45 yards to make it two 0 and that was another point where United were on a long, a, a pretty good winning run or a beaten run under Solskjaer. And it it's, was pouring down with rain now. It was a Sunday afternoon. It was chucking it down with rain. They beat City 2-0 and, and that was incredibly loud. And celebrations went on. I mean, it must have been 10, 15 minutes for pretty much anyone left the stadium. It was really loud. Again, it felt like United were in a good place and going somewhere under Solskjaer. And I think with, all, with that, there was also the element that I think people maybe kind of knew that this was coming to an end, that you know, pretty soon games were going to be behind closed yeah. doors. Um, and and sure enough, that that came to pass a few weeks later. But that you know that was very loud and quite a quite a memorable game. The you know the conditions that day, the pouring rain, the four thirty kickoff, the noise at the end, kind of added to a proper derby feel. Yeah, it's a very privileged job, and yeah, like I said, I think we're as excited for the international break to come to an end as yeah. as the United fans, so we can get back to a report on those games and bringing you some more stories. I've got Fulham away coming up, and of course, last time I was there was the famous pick and mix incident, which. Uh, Ended so horribly for me. I think I was on the band list there when oh, I yeah. when I smashed that. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. want to go into it. No, no, it's a very funny story. Maybe you can tell it before. Well, Maybe I will do that. I'm off. I'm off that week. It's my birthday week. Is it? Oh, congratulations! Yeah. You've been invited to my party. Twenty-one are you this time? So, Twenty. Well, Twenty-five. Yeah. Think, realistic. What is it? Yeah. No. Yeah. Can't wait. And thank you very much for joining us today on the Manchester is Red podcast. As always, make sure to give us a like, uh, follow, subscribe to us on all the, the platforms. I'm sure the links are in the description. I'm sure our talented video editors can do that. Great. Um, thank you very much. Take care and we'll see you again next time.